This episode of Print Run. My name is Eric Kane, and with me, as always, is Laura Zatz. Say hello, Laura. Hello, Laura. It's August 12th. Do I have that right? It is. August 12th. Um, we are here today to discuss the same thing everyone in the book world is talking about, which is the PRHSS versus DOJ uh, so many letters. publishing show trial. We're going to give our take on that here in a minute. Um, before we get to that, uh, how about the basic rundown? Absolutely. So it's, I don't know, a week and a half, not quite two weeks into August. Mm -hmm. um, Eric and I are going to be getting out our query show and first pages critiques um, in the next two weeks. So if you would like for us to critique your first pages or your query, send them to us. We're at printrunpodcast at gmail.com. Um, we try to pick them randomly, kind of across genre. We so curate a little. We, you know. we, we curate very, very roughly. Um, so if you have something that you go, well, I don't know if I should send it in because Eric and Laura don't really do this. It's because nobody sent it to us. And you should definitely send it because I'm sure there are people who are listening that write in the same area as you and would love to hear a critiqued query of a particular genre. Um, so again, we're at printrunpodcast at gmail.com. Also, we probably by the time you are hearing this, you will be able to head over to Patreon and find the dates for our office hours. We're mm -hmm. each doing two hours of office hours this month because of travel. We weren't able to coordinate them last month. So we'll catch up. Um, yeah. So lots of opportunities to ask us questions, hang out with us, get to know your other fellow print runners. Um, and so that, again, those dates are going to be on print run as you are listening. So before we get going um, on our big topic today, I do want to spend a second on something that's kind of a downer and a little bit personal. Um, yesterday on social media, we found out that uh, the science writer and doctor and um, just all around medical slash history of science thinker uh, Brett Stetka passed away um, at the age of 43. Um, I found out on Twitter, just like everybody else. And um, it's personal for me because Brett is a client of mine, or I guess was a client of mine. And I just wanted to spend a second to basically just, you know, offer up a, you know, just a thought and a prayer to his, you know, his family, to um, his little daughter, his wife, um, and just say that, you know, I never met Brett in person. Uh, we were never, you know, he lives or he lived in New York. Um, I'm out here in Minneapolis. And but we worked together for, I think, about six or seven years mm -hmm. at this point. He was someone who came with us when we moved away from Red Sofa, when we opened Headwater. He was one of the clients we had on day one. Um, and he came with me, and he and I had uh, successfully sold his first book, A History of the Human Brain, which, um, if Is you Is that like, the title of it? Yeah, which you like, if you like science history, if you like neuroscience, the book is doing quite well. It's been reviewed great. Like, can't recommend it enough. But, um, you know, we were getting ready to do our site, you know, we were starting to toss around proposal ideas for book two and all that kind of stuff. And then 
obviously this immense tragedy happens and it's just sort of I think a reminder that this is really deeply human work that we're doing you know and it's fragile like human life is it's you know difficult and complicated and um, you know it matters like human life does and it's just you know you never I, I feel like one weird spot that we're in as agents a lot of the time mm-hmm. is there are certain situations and there are certain spots where we are a writer's closest advocate right like we're the person they're confiding in the most we're the person they know best with what specific with regard to one specific part of their life right and it creates a scenario where you don't really know how well or how close you are to a specific someone you know because again I've never met Brett in person he was someone I worked with you know mm-hmm. but I find myself you know sitting here today and yesterday feeling you know not so great <laughs> about this I mean it hurts to lose someone that at this point at by that point in our working relationship I considered a friend um, and I don't know like I don't really have a you know, this isn't like a topic, this isn't a take. I mostly just wanted to voice aloud that like this work is very deeply personal, I think, for most people who care about it. And um I just I feel for Brett's family today. I wish the best to them. Um and if you go on my Twitter you'll see links to like a GoFundMe and stuff for his family if you're interested in donating. But um rest in peace, Brett Stetka, um and blessings to your family as they uh, mourn your loss. And one more time for the listeners, the book. Um, it's called A History of the Human Brain. Um, it published last year um, from Timber Press, part of Workman. Um, and we're immensely proud of it, all the more so now. Um, I yeah. was flipping back through yesterday through the acknowledgments and feeling all sorts of ways, you know. <laughs> um, but the book's yeah. a very good legacy. Anyway. Yeah. Um, it's hard to transition out of that I realize but I would have felt strange not saying something on our show about agenting when something like that happens so yeah yeah. anyway so deeply hit the um, you know sound bite for whatever our reset like noise is like Um, that's nice yeah no let's let's use that Um, we've got a show trial (laughs) happening yes Um, and for those of you who very blessedly have been staying off, <laughs> and of, you're beautiful people, yeah, and who we have love been you. who have been staying off of Twitter, which is you know most of us don't have this is not a televised trial. We don't have access to it other than what reporters have very graciously been um, tweeting and then also filing their stories at the end of each day. Um, this is a trial that is supposed to last about three weeks. We're two weeks in. Mm-hmm. Um. I have way more gray hair in my head than before. <laughs> um, yep. So for, for those of you who aren't super familiar or don't quite understand, just a really quick rundown. Mm-hmm. Um, two years ago, Penguin Random House, which is already a, a merger of Penguin and Random House. It's amazing uh, how normal that feels. I know. Even when that was a big thing. I know. Yeah. Made a $2.2 billion bid for Simon & Schuster. Uh, which would give them probably about fifty percent of That's like, the estimate. The yeah. yeah, the market share um of books traditionally published in the United States. 
Um, and the Department of Justice was like, hey, that feels like a monopsony. Yep. We should file an antitrust lawsuit to stop this from happening because it seems like it would cut competition. Mm-hmm. So this trial right here is the DOJ suing Bertelsmann, who is Penguin Random House's um, like parent company. Um, and there's been lots of CEOs, lots of big time authors and agents um, on on the stand these past two weeks. Um, unfortunately, a lot of these specific data points have been redacted and not given to the journalists. So it's um, it's very like secondhand at this point. Um but that's what's happening, and it's driving everyone insane. Well, we should shout out. We should shout out quickly to um, the the reporter John Marr, yes, who, who started who started the tweets <laughs> of all of this. Who really did a remarkable and uh, just steady job of giving us the sound bites from the trial as it was happening. And um, I know it exhausted him by the end, and it was work well done. After John from Publishers Weekly was sent home. Beth Ann Patrick, who is tweeting at the Book Maven, uh, has picked up the tradition, I suppose, and has been also reporting on Twitter for the last three days, um, which feels a little bit more robust than the end of day trial summaries that have been uh, that have been published throughout. So, I think just really quickly, um, everyone who's not running a very large publishing company. <laughs> is rooting for the DOJ to come on top. No, why is that? Let's just, just for a quick second. Why is it that you? I don't mean to presume, but I'm assuming that you, Laura Zatz, agent, do not want this merger to happen. Well, I have been on ABC and the BBC talking about <laughs> this specifically in the last. You week. have. Tell me why. Just give me the. You don't have to re- recapture your sound bites. We've tweeted those to our followers and everything already. But just in a sentence or two, tell us why. This is not something that publishing people should be rooting against. When you have consolidation of businesses like this, you get the normal things which happen when mergers happen, which is that redundancies are eliminated, mm-hmm. um, which means that maybe not right away, you know, and Penguin Random House very famously has been um, working in kind of two two tunnels. So like Penguin is still operating fairly independently from Random House. Mm -hmm. Um, But that only really goes so far. You know, like, ultimately... Well, we learned this week how it doesn't really go that far at all, which we're going to get to. So that's how the workflow happens. But when it comes to acquiring books, when it comes to budgets, when it comes to hiring, um, what happens with a merger is you have the supposed redundancies like the job positions shrinking you've got imprints that will be closing you've got fewer places essentially for us to sell books and you also have not even the potential but the guarantee that when there is an interest from multiple imprints multiple editors that there will be some sort of like collusion less is that too strong of a word yeah it's, less competition because yeah. they're going to be able to talk well, there's to just another. there's less houses there's, like yeah. one on on its face there's just less independent places places independent from each other to send books so there's going to be less of a chance for places to compete against one another and that's a huge deal for anyone in our position who wants authors to make as much money as possible and you know be paid fairly for their work and all that sort of stuff but there's obviously there's like a million things 
that someone could focus on because it feels like it feels like what's on trial through what we've seen so far from the reporting out of these testimonies and it's come from as you say like you know some of the biggest names we've had you know the biggest agents the biggest publishers you know like Stephen King Stephen the biggest authors yes um the who's who of giant corporate publishing has shown up to give their view of the industry Mm -hmm. and in that regard it feels a little bit like and especially with regard to like the you know the DOJ's line of questioning and all this sort of stuff like it feels like what's really kind of on trial is the view of how publishing works held by um these very high-ranking publishing officials Mm -hmm. right like basically they've been asked to share how does all of this work and they have given answers that um i find frankly demoralizing um and i think the reason like the broad impression that i've gotten from listening to these people talk and we've heard you know michael peach and jonathan carp and you know, all these people, these big, giant, you know, publishing giants. CEOs. You know, people yeah. who are in charge of things in a real way, you know, talk about what goes on at the houses they run. Or maybe better put, what they think goes on at the houses <laughs> they run. Um, because a lot of the time it feels like they maybe don't have a firm sense. Um, it just seems like their view of publishing and how it works has absolutely everything to do with the top 1% of books they purchase and nothing to do with anybody else, mm-hmm. right? Like every discussion is about the book that's making a quarter of a million dollars in advance. And they've all but said that everything else is sort of negligible. And we've sort of known that, right? Like something you and I have argued on this show, or maybe not less argued than put forth as a theory of how this industry is functioning and like trending toward functioning further is that is the erasure of the midlist right? right like the idea that there are big books that get all the resources and all the money and publishers get really feisty about trying to bid for and there are the books that they are unwilling to shell out whatsoever for that get the wait and see contracts that oh if it blows up through some organic means they aren't going to pay for them maybe they'll stick a little bit of money behind it to ride the wave but there, you know, there are haves and haves nots, right? There's very few books that are like in the middle, you know, that's sort of just like we invest a standard amount in and they do a reliable, you know, amount of sales and we just that's fine, right? You have the giant bestsellers and you have the books that disappear a few months after they publish, um, in terms of publicity. And they all but have basically said, Yeah, that's what's happening in terms of our strategy, right? Like, I mean, we've seen it's it feels like the entire discussion has revolved around how these presses bid for these books that, you know, take up vast majority of the resources. Mm-hmm. And they've almost gone out of their way to say that, oh, these other books, we don't really know what's going to happen with them. You know, we don't really know how... Like, one weird theme, and then I will turn this over to you and I'll quit <laughs> rumbling, but, like... One really strange theme I've picked up on, especially listening to Jonathan Karp's testimony, who's the CEO of Simon & Schuster, is just this repeated refrain that no one who works at a publishing house has any idea how to publish or sell a book successfully. (laughs) 
You know what I'm saying? It's all like, a crapshoot. Yeah, everyone's like, oh, it's just like, oh, that's the mystery of books, or we don't know anything. I mean, one guy, the, the guy at Random House said, oh, well, that's why we're the Random House, because everything is random, and we don't know what's going to work and what's not. And, like, nothing is attached to, if we invest a ton in marketing, well, we don't know if that's going to work, as opposed to, you know, investing zero in marketing. Like, nobody knows anything. We can't be held accountable for our results. There's no, uh, there's no process by which we reliably sell a book. And... So there's actually, so there's, there's some truth to that. And I want to be really specific about what I mean. So this trial, the reason it's driving everybody who actually works with a book on a day-to-day basis, um, why it's driving agents and editors and assistants and publicists and marketing people insane Mm -hmm. is because what is being talked about it's very much like a tale of two publishings right Mm -hmm. like the stuff that we see every day is so much more nuanced and varied than the specific purview of this trial which is books Mm -hmm. that get over two hundred fifty thousand dollars in an advance and this idea that sort of runs all of publishing from the top down And this idea that we're constantly batting our heads against, which is publishing claims it doesn't know how to sell a book, Mm -hmm. how to make a book marketable. And I think I finally figured out why this is the case, Mm -hmm. because it's not the case when it comes to a debut author. It's not the case when it comes to there's two two realities. What it is, is when you have a huge like phenomenon or somebody who has a really like incredible strong backlist like a Stephen King and the author is bringing so much name recognition and and platform to a publishing perspective that sure they could shell out you know $500,000 or $50,000 on marketing and publicity and you know who knows if this book is going to take off Mm -hmm. Um, because when you have projects like that, a lot of it is name and a lot of those books are going to sell super well anyway. Right. But also at the end of the day, like Stephen King has so many books that like if he writes a shitty book, you're probably not going to read the shitty one. You're going to go read a good one. Yeah. I figured it out. Like yeah. it's and and what's insane about this is that that idea and playing with those numbers and you're seeing all these CEOs throw around ideas like, oh, $100,000 isn't really a big advance. So we, should, we should make sure we focus on that in a second. We will. Um, but you have them throwing around these numbers where, you know, there's not a huge difference between, you know, if I have a $2 million budget for this book, you know, there's not really a huge difference between if I am spending a million dollars on marketing versus, you know, $500,000 on marketing. It's mm-hmm. not going to make a difference. We don't really know. Mm-hmm. That is so different from like what you and I <laughs> spend our days doing, mm-hmm. which is please, can this author have their $10,000 not broken up into four pieces? Isn't that amazing, that disconnect? Because they can, that that part I think was certainly the sequence of questioning that got people in specifically our neck of the woods really riled up, right? Because there was this idea thrown out there that, again, that we're just tossing money around, right? Mm-hmm. Like we don't, and as you just said, like huge budget, mid budget doesn't matter. You know, these are all rounding errors, practically. You know, to the tune of like six figures worth of money. All these things, you know, saying like 
And if you and if your <clears throat> bet fails, that's okay because there's another one coming. And yeah, exactly. Whereas the reality you and I live in, that you just described, involves one begging publishers to come up from, you know, fifteen to twenty, from ten to fifteen, from seven point five to ten thousand dollars, and they. The responses we get is, oh, the budget, we can't make it work. There's so many things. You know how publishing is. Things are so tight right now. Like, we just don't know if we can make these specific numbers work. And, like, meanwhile, their boss is, like, saying, P&Ls aren't real. Like, our boss yeah, is Yeah, and they're like, posting <laughs> record profits. Yeah. <laughs> like, we don't even believe in our own budgeting process. So it's like there is this huge disconnect between how money is viewed and – Anyone with any sort of political leaning whatsoever can probably map this conversation onto any number of realms that aren't publishing, too. But we're seeing it here, too, where, like, the exacting nature of budgeting, the making the shoestring work, make it, you know, every single cent's got to be accounted for. And no, we can't give you, you know, an extra thousand dollars. Or no, we can't not break it into four parts over Sorry, however many. Sorry, we can't print like, a physical edition yeah. to give to your blurbers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Ex- yeah, exactly. Anything where they're like, oh, no, that $500 it would take to do that is just too much. Like, it's in such stark contrast to what we are now being told in testimony. Like, they're not hiding this stuff anymore. Like, this is the most galling part to me is, like, everybody has to go to work after this. And it's like we've had publishers all but announce that everything that they have drilled into their younger employees, their lower-level employees with how they're supposed to do their jobs or how they're supposed to approach certain interactions or negotiations, it's not actually real or it's not actually how it's intentionally – there's this real intentional, like – sequestering between the haves and the have-nots and it's just like I there's, know, it's there's crazy something making. there's something really specific i i want to point out because like what eric and i are talking about these these smaller numbers these fighting over shoestring budgets yeah that is the reality of 95 percent of this yeah, business everybody that is something so like one thing <laughs> uh that's been touched on a little bit in like, like the last week of um, of testimonies is that midlist books are the backbone of a publisher, mm-hmm. and it's what keeps them solvent. God, they it love saying keeps, that, don't they? It what keeps, yep. it, yeah, it keeps making them money. <laughs> and then in the same breath, we have this like claim that you know there's not that much difference between. $100,000 and a $200,000 like advance. And there's just like this I've never seen an industry so willfully disregard like what keeps it afloat. Like mm-hmm. cuz the 100%. thing is is if you have and yep. we and you know we talk about this we talk about it in nonfiction as like the cable newsification yep. of like yep. nonfiction books, yep. right? Where it's like they're chasing popular stuff and they're just trying to get those Initial sales hit the list, get that money out, and then move on to the next one. And they're they're investing in books that don't necessarily have staying power, but are making really big splashes. And the reason for that is they are making huge bets to get sort of a, a cultural market share from attention rather than from the body of work that they're actually trying to produce. Try this theory on for size. I'm yes. just spitballing here. 
the big books, one of the marketing techniques they use for those big books Mm -hmm. is the publication of these smaller books. You're the marketing. What do you mean by that? Because what you just described is that the reason, like, the question is why do these smaller books? Like, if they're not going to invest anything, if they're not going to do these things, it's because they know that there's a certain amount of cultural market share Mm. that they need to have in order to sell things at the higher level. And so, like, there is, like... It's almost like the novels they are they're only going to pay five thousand dollars for and not really promote if they're like good literary objects like that itself is the branding, you mm. know what I mean? Do you see what I'm saying? So they're like, using the mid list. The mid the and to I don't even like saying on. I don't even like saying the mid list. I like saying, you know, because I don't know how mid these you know books are in terms of like I feel like is there such is it a mid list no, if there's only one lead title that gets all right, of right I mean resources? I think it's stratified I think there's the there's the list and there's the other books you know the big books the, yeah it's I just it's almost like like and I've been sitting you know one thing I've been you know sitting with this week is why these publishers are so intent on announcing in seemingly every single sentence that they don't know what they're doing. And I'm not I'm not being glib. They are saying that. They're saying, oh, we don't, you know, we don't know how breakout hits happen. We don't reliably know how to make the New York Times bestseller list. We don't know how, you know, which books are gonna succeed. If we did, haha, we'd change all our you know, like there is this public performance happening of incompetence. And I've been just sitting like, why? Like, why would you get up and say that? Like, in like, what is the strategic? Because there's, there, it's clearly like, and the reason I think is because they're trying to. They're know, trying to make writers feel grateful that they're investing in them. That, and then in the in the context of this trial, there's this idea that like, if they can prove that you know nothing means anything, then it doesn't actually matter if they get any bigger, right? Which we all, anyone with a brain understands is not the case. You know what I mean? Like, that's the part of this that's so crazy making is like the story that these publishing executives are asking us to buy falls apart within five seconds of scrutiny because one, it doesn't make any sense on a business logic level. Like, I've been describing details of this to like friends who work in other industries and they're like blanching. Like, what? Like, he said, what about like they're like, Imagine any other, like you listeners, you all work in fields, or many of you work in fields that aren't publishing. What if someone at your job said that the difference in $100,000 in investment in something just didn't matter whatsoever and was completely negligible and had no effect on results? Whoever believed that probably wouldn't get to do that job anymore, right? Because it's like, we're going to find someone who knows what to do with $100,000 as opposed to just throwing it away and being pleased about it. Like, it doesn't make any sense. I also think that a lot of this obfuscation is meant to pull attention away from the fact that publishers make money on books long before authors make money on books. Okay, so let's that's a great point and I want to unpack it here. So I want to set you up a little bit for it and then I want you to turn loose on it, okay? Great. So, I'll go feral. It'll be it'll be <laughs> awesome. Because this is such a huge point that we've seen it's such a fundamental thing that I think we forget that a lot of people following this don't realize this right away, which is that when, in a, like, in advance is not set against, like, the book's cost and overall budget, no. right? Like, it's set against royalties payments specifically, which are small in relation to how much a book 
like you know, if a if a, if a royalty rate is twelve point five percent or something, that means the other eighty seven point five percent that comes in less a, costs. Yeah, less when a, yeah exactly less costs when a book when a book sells. That's money that's being made back by the publisher on the book, which is to say what you just said that advances that the author does not break even on advance royalties at the same time that the publisher does. And so we're not even really talking like there's been this like mind trick played, right? Where like the advance, like publishers have like tricked the world into thinking that, oh, if we overpay on an advance, we don't make any money. It just makes me nuts. It's crazy yeah. because it's just so not true. Well, and that's and that's the complication and like the the magic trick yeah. that the defense here is trying to play with the DOJ, which is so the competition specifically that the DOJ is focusing on is acquiring books to publish, right? So getting the permission to publish from from writers. Um, and specifically talking about like auctions and driving driving uh, that this merger might drive the price down on auctions. Mm-hmm. And that number <laughs> is is uh, that number that is offered is a number that is only sort of tangentially related to how much money the publisher thinks that they can make from a book. Mm-hmm. And there's this idea and there's um, so Andrew Wiley, who is a agent from the Wiley agency. In many um, ways, he's the agent. He Yes. So he very famously has this strategy where his agency does not do auctions. And Andrew Wiley is very famous for saying that he never wants his authors to earn out in advance, which is like a fine strategy if you know, for a certain type of author, it's probably less of a fine strategy, um, you know, depending it's... on some specifics. But like that, that strategy, that idea is, is that he wants this much money up front. And the idea is that then the authors um, will actually get paid for something regardless of how much the book sells. And right? he's treated like a monster for this. Oh, by sure. The way. Like the idea that this guy would want to advocate in the, the idea that an agent whose job is to represent an author in a negotiation might say, I would like my writers to get a good deal. Yeah. Is like, oh, this man is so selfish. He's, you know, I don't have a strong opinion about Andrew Wiley beyond this, but like this one specific talking point that everyone comes up on him where it's like, oh, he doesn't want his authors to earn out. What a toxic, like, what a He's still making publishers money. One, he's making publishers money for all the reasons you just described, which is that publishers make money before an author earns out. Two, like, when did it become my job to make the publisher money? It became my job to make the author money. Mm. These are opposing forces. Like, one thing that I find crazy is that even if everyone's getting along, the reason you have an agent in the first place, the reason there is a negotiation in the first place is because you have competing interests. This is a basic transaction. Like, and so the idea that it's really important that the author should be bending over backwards to, like, give up money up front to make sure that, oh, the publisher earns out, like... I find that crazy. And obviously, in context, we do want that to happen because publishers have become 
have used that have I think wrongly now used that as a metric to decide whether or not to pursue a second book, to do other things. Like you know what I mean? Like it is important now for an author to earn out, and there's reasons to prioritize that because of how that that now looks according to the internal logic of a publisher. But like. But you can earn out a book in three months and the publisher might still decline to publish your next book because the book didn't sell as much as they hoped, I which think means that, that they underpay you. Yes, yeah. exactly. Like that's the, that's the that's the flip side of it. If you are being paid, if if you earn out your book in a few months, you should have gotten a bigger advance. Yeah, you, they could have afforded it. And Andrew Wiley is the guy with the gall to say that and say that he's not willing to just let like publishers tell this story of like the you know clutching their purse strings you know poor you know oh we're just lovers of art we just want to publish the books when very clearly they are not saying that this week like whatever myth you had about that really it should be gone and i don't know like again like i'm not like caping up for andrew wiley but like i do think this specific point that comes up is strangely like debated when what he's saying is extremely basic you know and there is like there is a lot of complexity about like whether or not you should be going incredibly aggressively for large increases in advance particularly if you're an author of color for instance Mm -hmm. if you don't earn out fast enough that can be an excuse that a publisher might use to say well you know you didn't make enough money but at the same time it's also deeply important to like give a marginalized author enough money to live off of while they're publishing their book, and both which, can be true. Yeah, is both the thing. can be like, true. Basically, we've seeded that we've seeded the logical point to them. Yeah, you know because like the that first option, oh, not earning out means that they're not going to do this. Like, okay, well that sucks, and they're wrong to do that. Like, it would actually there's a, there's plenty of situations here where the author doesn't earn out, especially you know like you're saying like a marginalized creator or someone like that, and it's like. They definitely deserve a second shot, not because we want that sort of publishing to happen, but also because that book probably made everyone money. Like, yeah. Also, <laughs> probably some of like the biggest like white male yeah. novelists you know probably don't ever earn out. No, because they, they get huge don't. advances because they're a big name, and that's what it is. And their humanity gets. I mean, we're on a whole separate topic now, but that's fine for a second. Like. Suddenly, you know, one, I forget that which writer got up and said, well, like, I would never take an advance that didn't let me take time off of work to write the book. And it's like, that's a, everyone got, like, mad at him. It's like, oh, what No, that's what an advance is for. Everyone's like, oh, what privilege to say that. And I looked at that and I thought, that should be the standard for everyone. Like, he's not wrong to say, why would I stop... Like this, this is where I want us to all recalibrate. Is not to say, oh, they, sh- this writer should get less. You should get what he is describing. You know what I mean? Like when, when someone gets up there, who's an ha- advance on future royalties is so yes. that you can pay to take time to make your book publishable. Right. So like when someone, when someone gets up there and says, oh yes, in my career, um, you know, I'm given this amount of money to write the book, and it lets me actually, you know, do whatever. I've been able to like comfortably do my work, you know, while being paid up front. We can all choose, and it's easy on social media to like, oh, you know, throw tomatoes at that man. Look at how he's so out of touch with what regular authors are doing. Or we can say, he's right to get that because he's doing work to create a book. We're also we all right should, to get we that. We also should get that. Our standard should be that. And it's, I don't know, this stuff just drives me nuts because 
I want I want us to see the actual contours of power here, you know? And So in the recalibration, yeah. we have the we we've got different areas, right? We've got the editors that are fighting for crumbs so that they can acquire this book that they love and mm-hmm. believe in and believe needs to mm-hmm. exist in the world. And it's doing and to be clear, that author is doing a ton of work for the imprint's brand so they can get, you know, the big flashy book later. And, you know, they there are there are publishers imprints that went up and said, we don't have a budget. And then I'm sure like a lot of particularly like the genre and the children's publishers just like had an aneurysm. Yeah, because the budget at the editorial meeting is the is like the ruling document. Yes. You come you have to come up with this like it's called a P&L, a profit and loss statement. Right. It sort of projects. How many copies it's going to sell? What you might invest in marketing? How much printing? It's basically like a budget. You know, like it, it accounts for all the theoretical costs. You know that would go into this, including things like advance and royalty rate and everything. And you basically present it to the publishing board and say, "This is you what decide I want to what do. format the book is going to be right. published in." Like, Based all on this, of this, like this document and this little computer, like at least maybe it's different now. But when I worked in house, we had a computer program where we could, you know, enter these. Like, it made this document for us based on the inputs we put in, all these sorts of things, right? And, like, that document rules your life. Mm-hmm. If you can't make that number work at a margin people like, you do not get to acquire that book. And so for publishers to get up and say, oh, the P- we don't even think the P&Ls are real. <laughs> like, it's just, it just gets back to that same thing where there's the segmentation between who is being asked to pinch pennies according mm-hmm. to... Apparently, completely arbitrary logic, and who is given largesse to do you know whatever they want. And, and then there's the marketing and publicity idea of you know there's there's <laughs> there's a quote uh, about how like it's not as if some <coughs> some publisher or some writers get paper plates and other ones get china and about talking about like marketing and mm-hmm. publicity. That's literally what happens. Oh, it's like, exactly what happened. Like, like it's directly what happens directly what happens and everyone knows that that's the thing that's crazy it's like we all know this we all live in this reality yeah and like certain authors in certain books get barnes noble special editions certain authors get sent five thousand book plates to sign so that the books can be signed some are sent on tours and some do a blog and those things like there's there's difference. And instead of saying, well, you know, like these, you know, these writers are getting all this extra stuff, et cetera. We should all be pushing for more things that help sell the book because yep. Yep. publishers know how to sell books like they do. They're they're claiming that they don't. And maybe they don't know how to make a hit out of, you know, books that cost them millions of dollars. And they're just kind of like getting the celeb books. Mm-hmm. But for for the core of their business, for 95% of their business, they know exactly what they are doing. And it is not a gamble. It is a business. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. It's a, Yeah. And you they know, like they know exactly what they're doing. And I want to make clear, too, that I don't believe, like, I don't believe that every single book should get the same budget. I don't. No. Like, I don't think there should, like, I think that a house will and should always have books that they emphasize like that's just that's publishing i'm sorry if that 
Like that's the reality. Is sometimes you're going to have a book that feels bigger than the others, and you got to put more toward it. I get that, and I and I believe that should be the case. But there has to be a matter of degree here. It cannot just be yes or no to whether a publisher actually supports the thing it has decided to publish. Like, which gets us back to the concept of the mid list, right? Like, there used to be a time where a book that got signed could expect a solid amount of resources put behind it that we all agreed was like a plausible attempt to actually make something work, right? Like it got, and that, that feels healthy to me. Like you're always going to have the thing in house that you have a sense could be the big hitter if you, you know, just put a little more toward it or whatever, like that's publishing. But the, this thing where most of the books a publisher signs gets nothing we have to ask, why are they signing those books? You know, like, what's going on? And I just, I don't know, it makes me frustrated. And I, I want to turn for a second to, because we're talking about a court case. Mm-hmm. But we're also talking about <clears throat> um, book advances, right? And the nature of book advances. And why are they talking about book advances? And the reason, I think it's important to overtly connect those two concepts right now. Because we've got this merger trial that... Every single piece of testimony so far seems to hinge around, like, how much authors are being paid. And the reason is because that is – that's the fulcrum of the case, that's right? That's the like, competition like that we're talking the about. The idea here that the Department of Justice is basically arguing – it's a very simple one – is that if there's less – if there's fewer presses, you know, around and one press has 50 percent of the market, then – the idea that an author is going to have multiple options that, like, their adv- advances are going to go down, right? And yeah. publishers are working very hard to say, no, they're not. We're going to. Smaller publishers can't compete with somebody who has, no, who just acquired another now. company for 2.2 billion. I can't, I can't tell you, and I love small presses. In my, so let's, let's talk about my work for a second. <laughs> like, I love independent presses i love small press i sell most of my books to these places and it's because they're the presses that have braver editorial staffs they're the places that have more interesting publishing programs they They, do the work they do the work they understand that if they want something to succeed they can't just throw six figures at it like they are going to have to actually come up with something savvy to do with the book and they succeed a lot of the time i love these smaller presses but man advance payments from these places right now like pulling teeth it's like pulling teeth and it's un, it's like unfeasible and i've had to walk away from so many rightfully so to be clear like i get we get offers from presses i love like places i buy books from places that i am a fan of and it's like i can't, i can't make my author sign a con and they can't my, live writing they can't write you know they've worked years on this they can't sign a contract for that few thousands like you have like there is, which is to say that when you know these public these executives of big five houses get up and say, "Oh no, these independent presses compete with us all the time." No, no, they don't. No, they don't. <laughs> like maybe he, you know they probably everyone has one case in mind where someone like a Norton or some you know so like a bigger independent pre- press really went for it and tried to like get a book. But that's and maybe one that's book a year. So rare. It's not the norm and. I don't know. It's just crazy making. And like this idea that like, I mean, we've basically seen admissions at this point that because the the idea of the auction came up. Right. It's like what happens when two imprints 
this is when this is when I I tuned out of the trial because in my mind it's done is when somebody got pushed on well what happens when two imprints within Penguin Random House want the book and that happens sometimes Laura I send books to you know Random House or imprints of Random House and imprints of Penguin that's a normal thing that happens like multiple places within a giant conglomerate are often looking at the same project at the same time what happens if they both want it well if there's a third party they're allowed to bid against one another but if there's only two of them then they talk behind the what scenes they, what are the, the phrase they use we coordinate bids coordinate bids okay trial's over what else can yeah. we do clearly this is like if the whole case rests on the idea that oh if we're all one even larger body like we promise we won't like collude on bids and we won't like talk and make sure that we aren't bidding each other up when we're all the same company which like of course they are like of course and, and there's they, already evidence that they do do that and and they've said it aloud now what are we doing what are we doing like it's time like, let's move on and like <laughs> i've never ever been one to stand around and wave my little pennant for the Department of Justice of the United <laughs> States, but here we are. Like, bring the hammer down. Like, I I hate this. I hate that. What I hate about it is that we are being asked to swallow pieces of logic in these testimonies that aren't true. That we we know aren't true. They know aren't true. It's very frustrating, you know. And I just we're gonna move on. I have a. I think. I think that this merger will not be allowed to go through. I don't know what will happen. After well, a that, lot of the testimony but, is now setting it up for another bid, Harper Collins to bid yeah. on Simon and Schuster, which would also be bad. Which to would be also clear. be bad, but I have a feeling like that would go through because it's, they're, they're not, smaller. They're small, so so they would if they come together, they would be about the size. Should of, we spend a second on why even do this? Like, why are all these giant houses intent on getting bigger? Like. There's because there's a big elephant in the room. Well, they right? don't have to try that hard if they're the only game in town. That, and it's also this idea that it's going to help them compete with Amazon, right? Yeah. Like it's going to mean that they have bigger, better leverage in negotiations against Amazon over like, um, you know, discount rates and all these things that you know they hate that Amazon does. And it's like, my friend, that ship has sailed. Like, we are pat. Like you. <laughs> and you can't. You can't fight. Amazon By to on acquisitions front when Amazon is completely bodying you on distribution and sales. Yeah. Like you those yeah. two things like you can't you can't transfer like the only reason that like okay, look at the pandemic, right? Sales for Amazon, stock for Amazon went crazy up the roof because uh-huh. people weren't leaving their houses, yep. but do you know what sector did incredibly well? Indie bookstores, yep. because indie bookstores are curated. There's taste. People yep. enjoy, like people enjoy that. Like getting on Amazon and browsing for a book is frankly really, really hard because there's so many books there. But if you go to a place who's like where people whose taste you trust and you know that they're going to have a really wonderful curated selection of like older books and new books and there's fewer things to browse and you know you're going to find something, that's better. And the idea that publishers are trying to consolidate their acquisitions and 
be bigger and bigger and bigger so that they can. And Penguin Random House is the only uh, big five that has their own printer. And, mm-hmm. like, they distribute a lot of, like, indie presses. It's just crazy um, The PRH about, is a way. huge yeah. distribution, um, is a distribution hub in, yeah. in publishing. Um, the idea that they can play against sales with Amazon by being bigger in another area. It's crazy. Like, what they should be doing is they should be further investing in like eponymous imprints that are that actually like mean something yeah. and are publishing something very very specific yeah but th- what have we seen in recent in the recent years one thing that we've talked on this show a lot about is like they're doing the opposite of that they're scrapping all of their oh, yeah. good imprints they're basically taking these places and we saw this you know you mentioned at the top of the show like you know when these mergers happen the first thing that happens is everything gets more efficient which basically mm-hmm. means huh? Reshuffling, it means layoffs, it means taking whatever cultural cachet a certain house has or whatever report has with each other. Like maybe there's an imprint that's really hot, you know, that they've they've just got the staff there that's just vibing with each other. They're publishing good stuff. And you just basically uproot that. You know what I mean? Then we've mm-hmm. talked so many times about the like unquantifiable parts of like publishing chemistry that you cannot just piece back together. No. And they are just upsetting that every single time they do this. And and when an imprint that is known very specifically as doing one thing mm-hmm. is acquired, it always changes. Yeah. Because they have to yeah. answer to a different set of financials. They have to answer to a different person in charge. Yep. There's so many levels that just undermine the the art part of this yep and that's the part that we like that's all we have like that is all we have it is like uh you know and (coughs) there's so much of publishing and i hope that for everybody who has been you know listening to this episode and paying attention to this trial like i hope that this has, you know, however bleak it's made you feel about publishing as a as a machine, I hope it's made you feel really, like, grateful and collaborative and kindly towards the editors and the publicists and the booksellers and, like, everybody who is doing the work with no budget and, with, and trying to, like, hold the line with art mm-hmm. when they keep having like insulting business yep. figures and like incorrect who aren't um, good at what they're at the, doing by no. the way like it, like obviously i feel like on one hand it's easy on an arts podcast for people who care about like books on a content level to be like oh the business people are just ruining our art but it would be one thing if the business people if the dudes in the suits were like good at being the dudes in the suits but it seems like we've gotten the rare mix of the dudes in the suits who also don't know how to do that. You know what I mean? Like, they're not – not only is, you know, the art world beholden to, like, corporate interest, but the corporate interest doesn't even seem to know how to pursue its own agenda very well. You know what I mean? It's well, not like – Well, do you know why? It's because they're already making more money than they ever have. Yeah. That's so they're, the part that they that's, won't – that's why like publishing has been growing at a very like traditional publishing has been growing at a very strong rate and do we know that by the way because i feel like maybe people don't know that over the last few years quarter by quarter increases all over the place so and i want to highlight that because the story always online amongst those of us who are not celebrities and you know people who represent celebrities and 
you know there's no money the, in publishing publishing oh, is no, failing yes, nobody's pu- reading right everything is falling apart publishing any minute now book publishing is going to just keel over and die and we're all going to be like out of a job and whatever and all these things that is not what's happening like publishing is making a ton of money it's going well for a lot of these people going better than it has been in a very long time and it's going to lead to a specific doubling down on strategies that we definitely don't like and i just one thing maybe to like head us toward the end here like one thing I kept thinking as these dudes were up there talking is... And they are mostly dudes. <laughs> <laughs> it is a very specific type of dude who is up there talking. Um, and they're up there saying, oh, our marketing team, you know, it doesn't matter if we give them X amount of money. Or, oh, we never know how publicity works. Or, oh, you know... They're angels. They're just doing <clears throat> it. Like... As they get up there and just trash department by department of people who work for them and say that nothing matters, they don't know how to do anything. Also, that they think that a hundred, you know, like you said, like there was that like Lucille Bluth esque quote about how a small advance these days is a hundred thousand dollars. Like these these quotes, like this. Eventually, this trial is going to end very soon, next week or so, and everybody's going to have to go back to work, and you're going to have to go back to your desk underneath whichever guy you just hear heard tell America that your job doesn't matter or that your department is basically groping in the dark and you have no expertise or that he sees you know a certain part of you know publishing as mattering and another part doesn't what what effect is that going to have and i think a lot about lately like the harper collins strike the Hachette walkout, these moments of like worker action. How quickly do you think Peng- Penguin Random House is going to get a union? I just feel like, <laughs> man, I, if ever there was a time to not, like if I'm one of these dudes, right, I'm not getting up on, you know, the big show trial and saying, oh man, I don't really value my staff. Because there's blood in the water right now. And it's, like, Did you, you know that you are going to play yourself, man? Did you, are you know get, like, <laughs> that in New York City you are eligible for unemployment after one week of a strike? Yeah. All right. Like, That's, yeah. I'm just saying, man. I feel like if there was ever a moment where it's time to really do the thing, and we are seeing people already do the thing very bravely, you know, stepping out and doing. You know, all the different labor actions that need doing, like, it feels like we're headed for more of that because they have, like, I'm not a huge fan of the phrase, like, oh, they said the quiet part out loud because it feels like these days there is no quiet part about anything anymore. they yelled it. They really did just take a megaphone and basically confirm all of the things that publishing workers who are not, you know, the top end have been saying about their jobs for years. And... If you're one of those people listening to this, you were not crazy. You were not wrong. Your intuition about what was happening to you at your job was correct. It has now borne out. They basically said so. What are we going to do about it? You know what I mean? And like, it's like, that's where we are. And I don't know, you know, whatever happens in this trial, you know, whatever the outcome is, whether they're allowed to proceed with this merger or not, like that reality doesn't change. And I just think we're sort of at a crossroads here. Like, whatever happens, it has been announced to us 
what the people running the show think of the industry, and it was not encouraging. Yeah. So let this radicalize all of us. Yep. There are things I know that agents can do to work with editors to provide our authors and also the editors with better conditions. There are writers that can change their mindset about (laughs) what they deserve and, and be really strategic about what is standing in their way and what is fighting against them and how to get around that. There, there are lots of things that I think that if, Everyone who is doing the actual work and working on the books that make publishing money consistently and keeps the lights on, that this is the list, not the big books, not even the mid list. It's just the list, right? Like there are, there are, I think, a lot of good things that can come out of this. And, you know, we talked earlier about how publishers and agents during negotiations have opposing interests and that's true but also we're working together to do something as well mm-hmm. and i think like i you know as as dejected and as numb as i'm feeling every time i read a piece of this testimony i'm also very very hopeful that everyone else is feeling the exact same way yeah and that we are not going to put up with it I think so. I mean, I think that's it. It's like you, you know, you're saying like, this is a moment not to spiral on the internet about it, but to reach out, connect, organize, you know, find sustainable ways to make art, make art, yeah. and you know, link with others doing that too. So, thank you all so much for joining us on this episode of Print Run. We will probably be touching back on this online and on here as the verdict comes mm-hmm. down and the trial wraps up. Mm-hmm. Um, also happy to talk about it on any of our upcoming office hours. Yep. Remember to send us your queries, first pages, or any questions you might have. We're at printrunpodcast at gmail.com, and we will see you very soon. Bye. Bye.